Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, Reser- now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I- Allison, where do you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the, on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, but also parenting stuff. Yeah, so. Check out Childish, new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to a very exciting episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Today, I have someone on the show that I have wanted to have on for a very long time, and uh, things just worked out. And here she is, live from her closet. It is Essie Cup, TV host, writer, political correspondent. You know her as the host of Essie Cup Unfiltered on CNN. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Welcome to my closet. Um, you have an amazing, I was saying this a little bit before we started, but you have an amazing closet because I was saying to you, a lot of people who, everyone who has to do their recordings from home now are doing them from their closets. So I have seen a lot of closets yeah. and usually they're like the, you know, compact little, like a, almost like a vocal recording booth with jackets. But right. I, you, this is like I know. a living room with shelving and clothing. I know. I, I got lucky. It's why I got this house. Um, I was sold <laughs> when I walked in because, you know, I lived in the city, in New York City for so long and just accepted that I'd never have, you know, a great closet. So when we finally moved to the burbs, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is why we, this is why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I lived in New York, I began to long for having a, a lawn. Like a yeah, lawn. of course. Yeah, a lawn, a washer uh, dryer in your in your apartment, all those things that are just taken for granted here in the right. suburbs. Everyone's a, got them. <laughs> a garbage disposal. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. I got it all, sister. I got it all. <laughs> I have. Are you in Connecticut? Yeah. I have envy. I have become envious of what I think is like your idyllic Connecticut life. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pre-pandemic because yeah. you were like always enjoying jalapeno margaritas. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of fresh seafood with friends. You're very mm-hmm. well put together. Um, <laughs> t- is your life as perfect as it looks? <laughs> no. No, I will say, like, I grew up in New England, and so, yes, there is a lifestyle here that revolves around seafood towers, right? <laughs> and, and and um, you know, margs and going to the beach. I mean, we are so lucky to live uh, where we do in a little beach town. We love it, but we chose it, and we, mm-hmm. we sacrificed, you know, we had to give up some stuff for it, namely convenience to my job, which is more than an hour away. Um, because we wanted to, to be up here. And so, yes, I'm partial to, to New England. I'm a mass hole. I grew up in Massachusetts. <laughs> so I will defend this way of life. But listen, we've got our, we've got our, uh, inconveniences as well. And listen, not to, not to be too much of a downer, but like, 
COVID don't care where you live, right? right. COVID doesn't care if you have a nice closet or you don't. Um, <laughs> you know, COVID's coming. So we've had to really, you know, we've taken it really seriously. And thank God I love my closet because I've spent a lot of time in here. I just got my results from, I've been tested three times since this all started. Um, At the very beginning, I was not seeing any, my parents are older. And so I was very afraid for them and very afraid to inadvertently pass it to them. So I just didn't see them. And around month four, I was like, well, if we get tested and then stay quarantined after we get our results, then we can see them. So now we get tested and then we go see them and I'm about to see them. Um, but I read this article that said something like, just because you don't have it yet, don't let that fool you into thinking that what you're doing is working. Uh. You might just be lucky. <laughs> it was, it was very, <laughs> it did not make me feel good. <laughs> no, because, I mean, for like a type A neurotic person, like yeah. I'm results oriented. I'm like, this is working. I will keep doing it and I won't get it. Right. It's like all the decision fatigue of all the little decisions you have to make and the things yes. that I've decided are okay, like going to the doctor and writing. You know, I remember yeah. being a. Af- <laughs> the reason I'm afraid of elevators is because my sister saw something on Facebook, apparently from an epidemiologist, saying that she herself avoids elevators. I don't know if. I don't even know if that's like if you need to be afraid of them <laughs> okay. or not. Yeah. But I've since decided like it's too hard to get to a doctor's office on the seventh floor without taking an elevator. So I will take yeah. an elevator. And now I've yeah. decided I think elevators are okay. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's a very crazy time. It is, but I know what you mean. The the things we kind of arbitrarily, right? Because we're not doctors. I'm not a doctor. Right. You're not a doctor. No. But I'm a mom, right? And so I'm and you are too. And so we're making these decisions constantly based on like really arbitrary like gut gut instincts and feelings yes. and this is okay, but this isn't okay. And it's um it is. It's exhausting. How old is your son? He's five and a half. Five and a half. Yeah. So are you doing like virtual distance learning right now? Do you have yeah, to go somewhere? I, I well, he starts school next week. I'm keeping him home. Um, and honestly, yes, it's for COVID reasons. Mm-hmm. I don't want him to get it. Bring it home to us. We also have older parents. Um, it's more though for the psychological impact for his age. Um, you know, we've worked very hard over the past six months to not stress him out. Mm-hmm. about COVID. He knows people are sick and that's why things are closed, but he's not worried that he's going to get it or we're going to get it or anyone he knows is going to get it. And so he's fairly carefree. And when I got the 60 page packet of what yeah. school will be like at his wonderful school, um, with the like morning temperature take, the hourly hand washing, the plexiglass windows, they say in it that they will talk a lot about COVID and and not mm. getting it and and keeping clean and keeping safe and I just feel like this kid will be completely overwhelmed and stressed when someone inevitably in the school gets it and they have to mm-hmm. shut it down and he'll get panicked and I just know my kid the way you know your kid better than anyone else some other five and a half year old might be fine going to his school. But I'm going to keep him home for at least six months until the experience of going to school becomes a little bit less dystopian, you know? Right. I know. And they, so I have taken um, my son out of preschool. And initially we thought maybe we'd go back in September. Now we're thinking probably not. Um, But the teachers were saying when they were explaining their protocol, they were saying that kids are really adaptive and it'll be fine. But I have the same feeling you do of like, 
what's that experience going to be like? Right. It's not just they are. And I've, I've been talking to child psychologists, not because I'm such a good mom, but like for my job, <laughs> like for work, you know, um, but because that's like, who has that time? I don't. But um, no. for work, I have. And so I they, they have all said the same thing. Wearing masks all day, they'll get used to it. They'll turn it into a game. Washing mm-hmm. hands all the time, they'll get used to it. They are adaptive. But the kids get their stress from adults. Yes. And how are teachers not going to feel anxious and stressed when they're responsible for all these kids, keeping them safe, keeping themselves safe? I just think it's going to rub off and it's going to be too much to process for my yeah. adorable, innocent, little five-year-old, you know? So you said that some kids, you think it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect them. Some it does. What kind of kid were you? Oh, um, well, I was very adaptable because we moved every two or three years. And so I was always the new kid and trying to, you know, audition and, you know, figure out, you know, my place and put on a happy face, love the new house, love the new town, love the new school, you know, So, and I was an only child, so I was very great with adults, not so great with kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took me a while to be like, you know, a normal kid around other kids. But I was always great with adults because I was always surrounded by adults. So I was mature in many ways and then in others, like, very immature. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, um, that disconnect was, I was always coming up against that disconnect, you know? Were you immature? In what ways were you immature? Because I was similarly not an only child, but I I felt much more comfortable around adults. I was better around adults. I was awkward socially. And I thought that I was so mature, but really I was very much a late bloomer. And and in a lot of ways I was very immature sort of in terms of, I don't know, social development, I guess. I think that's exactly right. I felt mature because I, I was mature. I was mature. I was ready for situations that were beyond my, my age. Mm-hmm. Um, I danced professional ballet at Boston Ballet. That was a very intense environment. I did that for 10 years. And so I, I handled a lot more than, you know, maybe the kids playing soccer did. Right. Um, and I had moved a lot. Like I said, my parents had been divorced. I had been through some stuff. And, um, so I, I was in, in a way psychologically, um, ahead of my age, I think. But in the way you suggest, I was a very late bloomer socially. I couldn't figure out like how to talk to kids, you know, mm-hmm. you couldn't talk to them the way you talk to adults. I didn't know how to be cool desperately. I still don't. But, um, you know, for a while there, I could fool them. Like when I got to college, I was good. College, mm-hmm. I found my people and I was, I was cool. I found my friends and I did really well, you know, in, in all the ways. Um, but it took until college. I never felt like I fit in before before college. Same. And did you yeah. get a Cornell? I did. Did you like it? Uh, yeah. No, I loved it. I, 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 it's such a magical place. And I go back from time to time to give, like, speeches or whatever. And I just am amazed at how gorgeous and special um, it is. And I was just so lucky to be there. I wish I could just be back in school there. Where did you go? <laughs> I went to Pomona College. Okay. Yeah. Do you know it? It's one of the Claremont Colleges. I do. Yeah. 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 And I loved it. 
um, I finally felt like I was at like the right place for me when I right. got there too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've actually been thinking lately just about that feeling of excitement, almost like ecstatic excitement when I would go back after summer vacation and like, oh my God, I can't wait to check in with all my friends and I get to yeah. live with them and yeah. very, uh, very different than the real world. So I, I um, you're such a, you're such a um, knowledgeable political voice and like an expert, I was surprised to find out that you sort of got into politics. That wasn't your intention, right? I mean, not that you're in politics, but to be right. a, to, to talk about politics was not your intention from the beginning. No, I mean, TV was never interesting to me. That wasn't a goal. I wanted to be a writer. I worked at my college newspaper every year that I was there. I ended up being the editor of the arts section. And I just that's what I was going to do. I was going to write in some form. Whether that was for newspapers or magazines or online, uh, I ended up writing a couple books. Like, I just wanted to write. And when I wrote my first book, my my publisher, Simon Schuster, put me on TV to promote it. And I thought, okay, well, this is just part of the, the deal. And in a week, you know, I'll be back to my writing stuff. And it just never stopped. Uh, you know, like I would just keep getting more invitations to do it. And so I would do it to promote the book. And then when the book was kind of done, I would do it to promote my columns and other things. And I just kind of stayed in the bloodstream. You know, we were at Fox at a similar time doing Red Eye. Um, I, I did that. And then I went over to Glenn Beck's network and then MSNBC. And now I've been at CNN for I don't know how long. It just, it, it like was an accidental job and I love it. It's wonderful. And I have such a privilege to do it. Um, there are much, you know, there are harder gigs, <laughs> but, but really I, I still do it because it's, it, it still facilitates my writing. And mm-hmm. I, you know, as long as I get to write and I get to write my own show and all the scripts and I get to write my columns still, and I write for CNN.com, um, I, I'm super, super lucky because I'm getting to do what I love to do. And I also get to do it in front of, you know, an audience, which is mm-hmm. really special. When did you begin to feel passionate about politics? It was late. I, I, what I think of as late. Um, I, I was always into the news. And I can remember, like, sitting on my living room floor, one of them, maybe in Michigan, um, and watching the Gulf War with my parents. And so I was always into current events. But I didn't grow up in, like, a very political household. I assumed we were Democrats because in movies, good people were Democrats and bad people were Republicans. So I assumed we were Democrats. And it really wasn't until I got to college and I met political people, people who were in- interested in politics. And I met liberals and, you know, my school was liberal that I realized, oh, I'm not like I'm not like that. I think I, th- I think I see things differently. And I remember freshman year after like going to a couple of lectures and kind of exploring, I called my parents and I was like, mom, dad, I think I'm a Republican. I'm sorry. And they were like, oh, so are we. And it, it was like we had just met. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. And then so then I sort of be- began like a an educational journey of trying mm-hmm. to ju- like reading everything I could. Buckley and, you know. Um, Ayn Rand, all the things that you read when you're a pretentious college student. And <laughs> it, you know, it just, it took over. I became, I was really into it. And then my last year, uh, the first year I lived in the city, um, was 9-11 in my backyard. And what a wonderful welcome. Yeah, it was, I, I, that hit me tough and it's still 
it's not gone. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I've described it is it, that is a tattoo that I never asked for. Um, because when you go through something like that, it's just, it, it changed me completely. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that made me want to be kind of an activist of, of some kind. And the only thing I'm good at is writing. So I started writing about politics and that was, that was that. How did nine eleven change you? I mean, I don't want to get like emotional, but, um, I took away a lot of my innocence and I took it personally. I saw a lot of things. I saw people jumping out of buildings. I saw people yelling at Sikh cab drivers for no reason, but because they wore a turban, which was awful. Um, you know, I saw grown men to me who were, you know, probably my age now, but because I was 20, grown men crying in the streets because they had lost friends that day. I walked three miles home, uh, to my apartment from my office in Times Square. Um, it changed a lot of people. It changed my friends. It changed physically. It changed the way we lived in that moment, but it also just made me terrified. It had its intended effect. Mm -hmm. I was terrorized. Um, and it made me angry and I'm still angry uh, about that. And so it helped shape some of my political views, uh, that I think were always there. But it, it certainly sharpened them. And, um, you know, for a time it made me very patriotic, you know, as it did a lot of people. But it also just made me want to invest more in policies and politics and not just sort of pretend grownups are taking care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, I just felt empowered as a voter. Like, I, I, need to, I need to figure some more stuff out and play a role. Right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think that might have been the first time that I sort of was a, a I had an awareness of a consciousness as an American in a different way than than previously. Yeah. Were you in the city too? No, I was still in. So I grew up in Orange County, born in Northern California, grew up in Orange County, California. I was surprised to find out you grew, you were born in the San Diego area, right? Yeah, Carlsbad. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I was I went to college in Claremont and then I moved back uh, to Orange County for a few years. And I decided on September 6th, uh, 2001, I made the decision I'm going to move to New York. (laughs) And then uh, 9-11 happened. My sister was in New York, though. And I remember being very like I wanted to drive there and get her. I was so, so worried. And yeah. then I so I put my plans on hold for a little bit. But then I moved there in like April, May of 2002. So yeah. I was oh. there pretty soon after. Yeah, but I, I mean, wasn't a, there. That was a brave thing to do. The city was a mess. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I remember thinking, am I am I putting myself in the line of fire? Am I? uh and, you know, I remember when I was at the airport waiting to get on my plane there, I was just so afraid of everything all of a sudden. Uh-huh. Um, and there was a guy who was covered in like white pride tattoos. And I, I thought, oh, I just did. I didn't know anymore what symbols to be. I mean, not that you're right. ever not that you're ever comforted by those symbols, but I didn't know yes. anymore what to be afraid of. And I remember I totally. called my parents and quietly told them they're like, it'll probably be OK. But. 
or I think this is me more reassuring than that. But um, and it yeah. was fine. And now that and now that I'm telling this story, I'm wondering like, was he really covered in these tattoos, or was that just my interpretation of his tattoos? Uh-huh, I'm just right. saying I was a f- everything. See, you didn't. It's sort of similar to what we're going through now a little bit in that it's constant risk assessment. Totally. Totally. And it's exhausting. It was really exhausting then. Luckily, I was young, right? So I had Mm -hmm. the energy for it and I wasn't a parent. Um, You know, all of that combined, it's just, it's a lot. I think we are all going through a lot and a lot more than, you know, we can even process right now. Right. At the beginning of this pandemic, I remember sort of trying to process it. And then at a certain point, it's like, we're too far into it to even have any perspective on it anymore. And now it's kind of just day by day. Now it's normalized to a point. I I still keep talking like, well, when this is over, I don't know when that, you know, when that's going to, I just said it earlier. Like, um, I was looking at, oh, I forget why, but a friend of mine just moved to Brazil. She is from Brazil and she lived here for a time and she just moved to Brazil and, I love her and I've, I've visited her in the past and it's not a great time to go now. But I remember I, I like literally an hour before I got on with you, I was asking my husband, like, would you go to Brazil? Can we go to Brazil one day? And he's like, when this is over, when will that be? And what will over look like? Mm-hmm. You know, like wh- what, what will that mean? Like, will we just cause we'll have a vaccine or I just don't even know. And so I've stopped trying to predict yeah. how this is going to go. Cause you just, you just can't. Right. I think we're just in the, acceptance phase of, I mean, for the most part, not that I don't get really angry though, sometimes and angry Mm -hmm. and sad, um, on, on that fun note. So you studied art history in college, right? Yeah. Super useful. I use it every day. (laughs) Did you, (laughs) did you intend to go into that field at one point? I did. So, um, I quit ballet just before I had to apply to school and I was not intending to go to college. I was intending to, to be a professional to go ballerina. On. Yeah. yeah. And I made the right decision to not do that, but I did it real quick. And so I didn't have this idea of what I would study. Um, and I loved art and art history and I knew it involved some writing, a lot of writing, which I wanted to do. So I picked it and it, it, I enjoy, I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot about a lot, but you know, was it a super useful degree? Probably not. I mean, journalism, unless you get a journalism degree, really anything you study help, helps you. Um, so it wasn't, I didn't need to have a specific degree to do what I do, but I enjoyed it. I, I, I really did. I, I thought that I would go into either art criticism or um, work in an art gallery, something in that space, but then mm. worked at the newspaper and I was hooked. Um. What made, can you tell me about your experience as a ballerina and what made you decide not to to keep going with that? Yeah. Um, well, it was terrible. I mean, <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I never did the, like the fun dancing, you know, mm-hmm. to the fun music and maybe you do competitions and stuff. Uh, I, I don't know why, but the ballet school we picked when I was six was this Vaganova Russian, very serious ballet school with no talking. And I was on point. She was at seven, which was oh, wow. awful. Um, Are your feet messed up now? Sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. But so I only knew it as this very intense, rigorous, super disciplined, super competitive um, experience. And 
I was always, in, you know, going going to like the best schools and trying to be the best. And I wasn't ever the best, but I was among, you know, some really good dancers. And so this idea was always out there that I could actually do this for mm-hmm. a job. But being a teenage girl is a terrible time to have body issues and all the scrutiny and insecurities that you have nor anyway mm-hmm. to have what I had at ballet on top of all of that was just, it was too much. And I was, I got super depressed. I got suicidal. And once I worked through that and accepted, I could be, I was somebody without dance because I didn't mm-hmm. know who that was. And so my fear of quitting was not, was not like, I'll miss it. I knew I would not. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who I was going to be without it. It defined, I mean, it's what I did every single day. I left school early to go to rehearsals. Like Mm. ballet was it year round every day. So once I accepted that I could figure out who I would be without it and that I was still going to be somebody, um, then it was shut the door, never looked back. And it was such a good decision. I feel like I got out in the nick of time. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. so interesting, that identity, the, the way it, it brands itself onto your identity so young. Um, were your parents encouraging of ballet? No, no. In fact, they asked me a number of times, like, you should quit. Like, you don't need to do this. And why are you still doing this? It is awful. Um, but, <laughs> but I was, like I said, a very independent, um, driven mm-hmm kid for some reason they were not you know barking at me uh, either to do well at school or 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 in in dance I don't know I was like super ambitious um and so I really felt like I'd be letting myself down if I quit or I don't know why but no I mean they were supportive to a point and and when they saw what it was doing to me begged me to quit but thank God they let me make that choice on my own or I would have, you know, probably resented them. Right. But I could imagine if you were super, you know, you got into it so young before other kids are are showing like a real aptitude or talent for something. And I could imagine if you got validation from it young, like chase and, and you had yeah. this ability sort of chasing that for a long time and it'd be hard to let it go. Well, it is. And I don't know. And I can't speak to others. I don't know other activities that six-year-olds do mm-hmm. that are that intense and competitive. And I just don't know. Maybe there are some. Um, but I always think of, and certainly with my son, I mean, he goes to soccer. Half the kids are picking their nose and sitting on the grass the whole time. <laughs> like, it's no one's ta- like yelling at them, you know? Right. And this was like yelling, yelling in Russian, uh, uh, of all things. So, <laughs> so it was – so when you did get praise – from mm-hmm. these people who conditioned you to seek it. Right. Oh my God, it was a rush. I've never felt that high since then. Over the course of those 10 years at various schools and ultimately at Boston Ballet, getting praise was the best I, I'd ever felt. Mm. And it happened so rarely. I mean, I can, I still have dreams about the times that I was praised by a certain teacher or director word for word. I remember that day and the giddiness of it. And that's what you were chasing. And so, yeah, to have that start young, I think before most kids are ready to be that competitive and intense was probably what kept me 
going longer than I should have, you know? Right. Can you tell me about one of those times you got praise? Oh, I'll never forget. Well, this was the big one. This was like the ultimate. Because <laughs> this never this never happens. This never works out this way. I'm in a big rehearsal studio with much older dancers because they had put a bunch of us together for a summer program. And so I'm in a, I'm in a class with like people I have been watching on the stage. This is a Boston LA and I'm I'm enamored of them. And I'm probably 14 or 15. And I'm in the seventh studio, which is the big, the big studio. And Laura Young, who is the director of the Boston Ballet and like, oh my God, so in love with her, is teaching. And she's working with a couple kids and I'm in the corner and it's a point, it's a point pas de deux class. And I do a pirouette and I happen to hit this crazy balance where I do five rotations. This is unheard of. It's unheard of. Most people find it difficult to do a triple, okay? So I just keep going around. And I, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I stop and Lori Young goes, I hope everyone saw that because that was amazing. If only your potted a partner had been there to catch you. And I was like, oh my God, not only did I do this amazing thing, she saw it. Yeah. And then told everyone in front of like my idols. <laughs> Basically, like, watch out for this kid. Oh my God. I don't, I'll never, I'll never feel that amazing again, honestly. That's <laughs> so sad. I can imagine that being super intoxicating. I mean, I just felt a vicarious thrill from that. Well, so, so now you are, you know, your, your face and your words and your name are in front of tons of people because you host a show, you're a regular on TV. You're, you get feedback all the time from people on Twitter and also in real life, I imagine. Yeah. How does, how does praise and criticism affect you now? So different. I, I don't, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Like, I don't get excited when someone says, great job, or I love seeing you, or that's not like a thrill. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. But I'm not um, titillated. Mm -hmm. And I don't really take it all that personally when people come for me either. It's it's part of the job. And I've I've gotten the worst criticism I think people can get, you know, uh, before any of this work started. So I'm I've got pretty thick skin. Mm -hmm. And I really just don't take much of it to heart, the good or the bad. Um, you consider yourself a conservative, right? Yeah. Do you still consider yourself Republican? You've been very outspoken against Trump and against the direction of the Republican Party. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're seeing into my soul because I am literally <laughs> wrestling with this right now. I, For so long into Trump, I, I said, you know, about people like George Will, like colleagues of mine, people I like. I'm not going to leave this party. I'm not going to let this a-hole chase me out of the party that I've loved for so long. But now I feel like the party's run away from me. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't think I belong in this party. I, I, you know, I don't recognize the party. And so I think, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I, I'm not in this party. What I call myself almost feels irrelevant to me, but I, I, I would call myself more of a centrist now or even an independent. Mm -hmm. I haven't voted for a Republican in years. So I don't know. I'm still a conservative because those are just that's a value system that doesn't change. But this party is not it's not why I became a Republican. It's not why I got into politics. I don't know what they're doing or who they are or what they stand for. 
but uh, they don't represent me anymore. So, mm-hmm. yeah, ultimately, maybe I will have to, you know, leave the party and be an independent for a while until they maybe come back together if they if they ever can. Who knows? Uh, I am. I don't know if you know my politics. I'm very liberal. Always been yes. very liberal. Yes. Um, what about conservatism? Conservatism. Conservatism. Yeah. Conservatism. Yeah. Speaks to you. Well, I mean, initially, it was this idea of limited government. Government should not be involved in every aspect of our life. That made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have a distrust of government, I think, to me, at 18, felt very sort of rebellious, right? <laughs> you know? Because, I mean, everyone in, at, at, in college is liberal. It's not rebellious to be liberal, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's actually right. rebellious to be kind of um To push counter. against it, yeah. Yeah, and so that was appealing to me. But the things that have reaffirmed my conservatism, you know, certainly lower taxes and fiscal responsibility, which we don't see in, in evidence much um, by <laughs> either party these days, Um you know, a strong national defense. I believe that if you think our democracy is the best system of government, it's your responsibility to bring it to other people, you know, and end despotism and oppression and human rights abuses around the world. I'm not an America first mm-hmm. um, isolationist. Um, you know, strong family values uh, speaks to me. And I'm not religious. I didn't grow up religious. I'm an atheist. Uh, I've always supported gay rights and gay marriage. So whatever your family looks like, I just think families are inherently, family is inherently a good institution. Uh, But I don't know. I mean, uh, so much of this stuff feels kind of lost, you know, in today's political environment that it's hard to know what is what. Like we're having almost an anachronistic conversation since totally since family what? values right i mean <laughs> does that it makes you it's insane it sounds insane i know i sound insane <laughs> but like this is a set this is a set of principles regardless mm-hmm. of who's in charge and who's pretending you know to wear conservatism as like a rented tuxedo um it is a set of principles and to me it just makes the most sense but i never i didn't become a conservative because i hated liberals I would, mm-hmm. I would have no friends. All I knew were liberals. Um, it, you know, that it wasn't an us versus them thing. And that's everything now. Everything. We are so identified more by our enemies than our friends. We're constantly looking for heretics instead of converts. That never appealed to me. That's not interesting or fun to me. Right. How I don't know how uh, how openly you can answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you feel about Fox News now? I feel like I dodged a bullet by um, not being there all that long. I was there like two years mm-hmm. um, every day. You know, I was on every day, but I and I. I'm having, I, I'm forgetting. Did you were you um, a commentator or were did you have your own show at Fox? No, no. I just did. Uh, you know, we did Red Eye together. I did mm-hmm. Hannity. Twice a week, I did Fox and Friends. I mean, I did got it. Whatever they asked me to do, yeah. Um, I feel lucky that I did not get the experience that a lot of our friends did. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get any weird attention? 
I, I, yes, I was, um, sexually harassed by a guest on the air Mm. who reached under the table. I was sitting next to him and grabbed my leg while we were on air. Yeah. But not by any talent or producers. Right. No. Luckily, I saw some gross behavior Mm -hmm. for sure, but none of it to me. Yeah. Um, so I was lucky. I felt lucky. Look, I grew, I feel like I kind of grew up a little there. It, it was really my first, the first place I was on a regular basis. And so I'm grateful for that experience. Do I like the direction Fox has gone in? No. But are there still some really good people that work there? Yeah. I think yeah. that's where I'm at. What about you? I mean, how do you look at it? Um. Yeah, I mean, I... I also am very grateful in that they put me on air and had me on a bunch of different shows, even though I think they knew that I wasn't conservative. Yeah. Um, Although Hannity did tell when I I went on Hannity once or twice and beforehand, he's like, you conservative? Are you liberal? It's better if you're our our audience will like you better if you're a conservative. (laughs) Right. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I got a lot of experience and it was very, it was very heady at the time to all of a sudden be asked to go on a whole bunch of shows. Red Eye was so much fun. I actually just did Bill Schultz's morning show yesterday. Oh, that's a trip, isn't it? Yeah. Have you done it? (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's fun. Uh, For me, being in California, it was very, very early. (laughs) Right. But, but fun. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I... But you yeah, made friends. Didn't you make like lifelong friends? I made lifelong friends yeah, there in that time. Yeah, I did. It was it was a really fun, heady yeah. time. And I guess I feel and at the time I even felt a little bit conflicted because I'm like, I don't uh, I don't agree with a lot of the things that I'm hearing. Right. And then now I especially feel like, oh, I don't think you're a force for good right now. Uh huh. This yeah. whole network. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you wrote the books that you've written, Why You're Wrong About the Right, Behind the Myths, and then Losing Our Religion, the Liberal Media's Attack on Christianity. Specifically the second one, which I have not read, but Losing yeah. Our Religion, the Liberal Media's Attack on Christianity. Do you have have your views changed at all since then, or do you still is this still how you feel today? Hmm. <sighs> well, having been in media for like 20 years now, I can tell you without hesitation, it's a very secular place. It's a very secular space. And the perspective through which a lot of news is told, the filter through which is a secular filter. Mm -hmm. I think that's undeniable. And I've worked in countless newsrooms on the right and the left, and it's a secular place. So I think that affects some decisions that we make. And... Some of those are economic. I mean, I I lament that major newspapers today, including like the Dallas, the Dallas Morning Star does not have a religion beat anymore. Like that used to be something, a story we thought that was important to tell considering 80% of the country is religious. Um, I don't think that's great for journalism. I, I mean, yeah, I guess I feel the same. I'd have to, because I was so actively looking for these examples at the time that I was writing the book, of course. Um, you know, and you had people like Chris Matthews really kind of crapping on Sarah Palin for her faith and like faith and 
Romney and Obama's faith, like all of this was really, really um, in the the news. Mm-hmm. It just seemed uh, like we were inundated with these kinds of stories and examples. I, I think the news cycles moved on a bit from that. But I think if I looked for them, I'd still find a lot of those examples of people in our business mocking, condescending to, or dismissing people of faith and not just Christians. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of anti-Semitism in, um, I wouldn't say a lot in the news, but there's some anti-Semitism in the news. There's some uh, anti-Islamic sentiment. I just don't think we talk about religion very well on on the whole. You have said that you're an atheist, but you wish you had faith. Do you? Yeah, it seems awesome. <laughs> Doesn't I it? I mean, it yeah. really does. <laughs> Are you an atheist too? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems yeah. amazing. Like, you've got this guy. You can always talk to him. You can always ask questions. Sometimes you feel like he listens to you and, and, mm. and hears you. You've got something to lean on. And I don't mean that derisively. I really understand it because my, my parents are religious. I know people of faith. Um, I went to Catholic schools. Like, it's not foreign to me. Um, it just seems awesome to have that belief and faith despite a lack of evidence of it. Because that's the point of faith. You're, you know, it, you are tested constantly to mm-hmm. believe in something you can't see and you don't know. To have that, it just seems great. Yeah. Right. And especially when going through really hard things or experiencing the loss of people or beloved pets or any of that, like I would love to think that there's, there's something more and there's a reason and all of that. But it's like, I've tried so hard to bend my, you know, to, to same, it it just, it just doesn't take for me. Same. My mind will not accept, accept it. And now I don't know if you feel this way, but like as a mother, I'm just, I'm worried all the time. I'm constantly anxious mm-hmm. and worried. In fact, I have a, a dear friend who's a religious scholar and he writes about religion and he's Catholic. And I write him long emails. Like, help me, how, how can I get to where you are? Because I think I would be a much calmer mom if I had something to believe. Because I can't, the worry over my son is mm-hmm. paralyzing sometimes. And... So we have these conversations regularly about faith or how I can import faith, but make it my own. So it's not resting on these things I can't believe in. It's a constant struggle. It is. Mm -hmm. And I I just think, yeah, if you're if you've got that as a toolbox, uh, how lucky you must be. Was did that create uh, any conflict with your parents that they're religious and that you're an atheist? No, my my dad found religion later in life. He was born again. He became born again at, when I was an adult. Um, and my mom believes in God, but she's not very active in church or anything. But no, I don't think, I mean, yes, my dad would love it if I would, you know, find Jesus, be accepted, uh, be saved. Of course he would. But it doesn't, it doesn't like keep him up at night. And he's not like... He doesn't criticize me for it or anything right. like that. Oh my I don't gosh. Think my well, mom really cares. 
Speaking of things that might keep you up at night, I want to tell you about something that'll help you sleep so much better. It's Brooklyn. And you guys have heard me talk about Brooklyn. And I have Brooklyn and sheets on my bed right now. They are the world's best sheets. They're super soft. They're super high quality, uh, luxurious, but at an affordable price. And then Brooklyn and decided we are, we're going to do more than just sheets. And now they have towels. They have loungewear. You've heard my producer Tony and me talk about their towels. Uh, they come in three different weights. I have the super like heavy plush spa ones. He has the lighter ones that dry faster, but he wants the super plush ones. You're going to want to collect them all. Uh, so Brooklyn is home of the internet's favorite sheets. They have over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. And because they love a deal almost as much as they love comfort, Brooklinen's Labor Day event is happening this weekend, featuring everything you need to outfit your home this season at a fraction of the price. Uh, Their selection is so versatile. There's really a little something for everyone in every season. Cool sheets, cozy sheets, plush towels, different colors and prints. Uh, I, as you guys have heard me talk about the sheets so many times, they're the only sheets I will allow on my bed. I just take them off, wash them, put them right back on. Their Labor Day event is coming up this weekend and it's a big one. Don't miss out on savings on all things sheets, towels, loungewear, and so much more. And if you can't wait, you get 10% off your first order and free shipping right now when you use promo code best friend only at brooklinen.com that's brooklinen b-r-o-o-k-l-i-n-e-n.com brooklinen everything you need to live your most comfortable life so brooklinen.com use promo code allison okay and we're back so uh, I take questions from listeners, and we oh have some listener questions. I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. You can get behind-the-scenes content, um, videos of the Thursday episodes. This video, the Monday episodes, which is what this is, will be on YouTube, youtube.com slash Allison Rosen. Please go there and subscribe. I'm basing my self-worth on my subscriber numbers. Uh, <laughs> but um, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen, right now... There's a special promotion, the first time I've ever done one, uh, where if you sign up for a year, so they're doing the annual memberships now, it's like a new Patreon thing, and if you sign up for a year, you get two free months. So that is limited, though, because um, because it just is. Okay, so let's uh, take, so anyway, I've taken questions on Patreon and Twitter, and we have a little song. When we ask, they send them in. Nice. Thank you for enjoying the music in such <laughs> a visual it. way. More reason <laughs> that everyone needs to check out the YouTube.com slash Allison Rosen. Okay. Whitney C says, what's something you can do to make your to make you feel more like yourself on an off day? Like what's something that I do to make yeah. me feel like more like myself? Like if you're having an off day. I always find a walk outside, clears my head. I try to take one every day. Sometimes I can't. Um, but like alone. Like mm-hmm. we do family walks sometimes after dinner, which is not the same. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but a, a walk alone with like my headphones uh, usually clears me, clears my head. And I feel a thousand times better when I get back. Not not because I'm like doing rigorous exercise. I'm mm-hmm. not. Just because I'm getting away from... TV and Twitter and my phone and people mm-hmm. and I'm just outside. 
Yeah. I was giggling when you were saying that because at the beginning of lockdown, we were taking these long walks every day. And I was like, this is my favorite part of the day. And then at some point I was like walking with a three-year-old. We had a one-year-old as well in the stroller. But walking with a three-year-old is like, this is now my least favorite part of the day. And now we don't do it anymore. (laughs) Totally. No, it's it's tough. Even with a five-year-old. I mean, it's just, it's not the same. You're right. No. Uh, it's it's not relaxing. Anyway. Exactly, uh, and and also the like walking and then stopping and then walking and stopping and walking and it's it's very it's all aggravating. stopping. It's like they're yeah. puppies and they have to <laughs> sniff everything yes. on the street. It's all yes. stopping. Mm-hmm. And you do you have a puppy as well? I do. Is this a quarantine puppy? Yeah. Oh yeah. It was because I think like a lot of people. I, and I wrote about this for CNN.com when the quarantine first happened. I was like, oh, I need another kid. I need another kid right now. Like, mm-hmm. um, we thought we were done, but I was like, no, no, no. My family's too small. You go into this, like, fight or flight, and I needed yes. to be stronger. And so I needed more numbers. You need and more so, on your team. Yeah. But um, luckily that passed. And so I decided, okay, then we'll get a puppy. And she's great. Her name is Dolly Parton. And Aww. she's super, super sweet. Uh can we talk about you thinking maybe you need to have another kid? Because yeah. I have two. Yeah. I feel so... I did IVF. It was very hard to get them. I feel like it's... I'm so lucky to even have two. Yeah. And all of a sudden, even though I think... I don't think it's even possible for me to do it again. Like, I feel like I got in just under the wire. All of a sudden, I'm like fantasizing about having a third. I get it. I, I, like, for all of the reasons we just said, your team feels too small. Yeah. And you f- spending all this great time, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I have loved spending all this time with my family, mostly. And <laughs> you think, well, gosh, family w- really is the most important thing. We always mm-hmm. said that, but we didn't really know. Right. And now that idea feels like a dare. Really? Does yes. it? Then I dare you to really make it bigger. And so I just went through all of those emotions and it felt hormonal it felt like mm-hmm. th- like like it was a corona hormo- hormone hormone a, coro- <laughs> a, co- a hormone a hormone a hormone um, <laughs> and so i knew to let it like breathe a little bit so i would talk to my husband and i'd say we're not making any decisions right now but this is what i'm thinking about and i, I need you to think about it with me and like i said it passed ultimately um as a desire as an urgency but when when all this first started, yeah, man, I was like, let's go. We're doing it. Right, right. All of a sudden, there's something so appealing about the big family and the like, I'm basically a professional mom and all yes. of that. Yeah, I don't know. It felt um, almost, it felt instinctive and mm-hmm. like biological. I don't know. It was, uh, it was weird. And so, as I do with everything... I had to write about it. And so I did. I wrote about it and I talked to other women who were thinking of having kids, um, didn't want kids before and now did, are in are pregnant now. I've got a couple friends who are pregnant in Corona and that's a nightmare. But um, just to sort of have this discussion because I thought, well, if I'm feeling this way, certainly mm-hmm. lots of women are. I think I read that. I did read that piece. Where did you, where did it run? CNN.com. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, Jennifer says, if you haven't already touched on it, her take on the Democratic versus Republican conventions, what could have made them better, you know, besides improving on the awkward families clapping at home? Yeah, let me say, I'll start by saying, 
I thought the RNC was really well produced. Really. Well. I prefer speeches on stages mm-hmm. than whatever was happening at the DNC with like a celebrity toss to a someone in a different background. Everyone was a different backdrops. Um, I thought, I thought the RNC felt a bit more professional. That said, mm-hmm. it was also, um, just like a heaping pile of <laughs> lies and obfuscation <laughs> and like pr- pretend nothing is happening in the world and look how great everything is. Uh, so I guess, I guess, I guess practically I thought the RNC did a better job putting stuff together, but, um, you know, in terms of messages, certainly thought the DNC was a much more hopeful, optimistic, forward thinking, um, empowering, uplifting, moving, realistic, uh, you know, um, four days. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee Bruns, is the great experiment a failure? Are we watching the dismantling of the U.S. or can it, will it recover? I think it can and will. I still have great faith in this country um, because my faith in this country is not um, dependent on who's in office or the, you know, the president or the political party in power or the government. My faith in this country is in its people. And so I think ultimately we can, we we can figure this out. And I, whenever I get to a, a, a place like that, wondering where are we going? How are we going to get ourselves out of this? I always think about Malthus as I'm sure you do too. Um, Malthus was a, a philosopher. Constantly. constantly. I'm constantly talking about this person, his name. I'm not even (laughs) sure who it is. (laughs) Well, Malthus was a philosopher and economist, um, pre industrial revolution. And he had this theory that America was going to run out of food, and there would be a population crisis and we'd all die of starvation. And what he couldn't imagine was the industrial revolution that would democratize the, the processing of and, and distribution of food. He couldn't imagine it because it couldn't happen. It didn't happen yet. And so I like to remind myself just because we can't envision a way out or a solution or how this is all going to get fixed doesn't mean one isn't out there. Mm-hmm. So I, I am, I put optimism in our future selves. That's kind of, I always think, is it Malthus or Mathis? Malthus. I always think of Malthus when <laughs> I begin to feel very anxious about the environment and yes, global right. warming and all of that. Cause I feel like there's, someone's there's got to be an 11th hour fix like someone's got to figure something out yes i think that's a perfect application of it um because you've got the 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 mix of a couple things you've got anxiety Mm -hmm. and you want that anxiety to go away and without a solution that anxiety does not go away you've got a, a lack of a lack of solution and an urgency to get there and so, yes, I mean, you have to hope that maybe not some kind of like deus ex machina, like out of nowhere solution, <laughs> right. but like solutions are coming. They're being worked on. People smarter than us are in labs somewhere, right? Doing stuff. So 
<laughs> yeah. Some of them are doing COVID and hopefully the other ones are doing the yes. environment. Um, yeah. Ulysses Atkins says, I have a question and a statement. Question. Oh, Would you ever consider doing a political commentary show or podcast with Mary Catherine Ham? And I consider myself a progressive, but I love your take on things and enjoy your frankness about stuff. Well, MK is a good friend and I've had her on the show many, many times. And so we, I feel like we have done a political commentary show together because when I have her on, I just want her to talk. I don't even do much talking Um, because she's so smart and lovely and wonderful and brave. And she's a great mom and all those things. She's great. And look, I've always said in this business, assume you will work with everyone twice because it's such a revolving door. You know that, Um, you know, maybe if you're at Fox and you don't like someone and they leave for MSNBC, you think, oh, good riddance. I'll never see her again. Yes, you will. You definitely will. (laughs) You will. You will have a show with her at some point. Um, Because everyone just keeps, you know, kind of moving and circulating. So who knows? Maybe one day I'll have a show with MK. That would be great. Uh, And then on Twitter, Michael Serrano says, no, you know what? I'm going to do the fun one first. And then we'll do the one that's less fun. Um, Nick Wester PI says, what was the hardest Jeopardy question she remembers getting right? Getting right. Or getting, I feel like, or getting wrong, because that might be the one that you remember more. Well, I do. Well, uh, let me, I'll tell you two things. Um, I love, like the, like the ballet memory, uh, I'll never get over the idea that I like beat Chuck Todd in the baseball category. Got a bunch of <laughs> bunch of the baseball questions right, but uh, no, the what we none of us got the final Jeopardy. The answer was veto, and it was some this Latin phrase used in Congress. Da 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 da. And for some reason, three smart political people could not come up with this. And I just remember we all kind of kicked ourselves when Alex said veto. We we're like, yeah, duh, veto. Uh, but luckily, I wasn't too embarrassed because I wasn't the right. only one that didn't get it. Who? So you were on with Chuck Todd and who else? Jonathan Franzen. And what was the experience like? Terrifying. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't, so I don't get nervous for TV. I never have. Mm-hmm. Um, or a public speaking. None of that. I was pooping my pants. I was so <laughs> nervous of being humiliated. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's you're on a you know big stage where people are going to see that and it'll just live on the internet. And if you say something stupid or get really, really embarrassed, Mm -hmm. that just does not go away. It haunts you forever. And so I was um, definitely worried that I was going to be, that I was going to embarrass myself. And luckily it all worked out fine. You know what I always wonder if I were a Jeopardy contestant and I had like a wild guess, not for the final, for final Jeopardy, but just like I had a a wild guess versus knowing something would i have the confidence to weigh in with my to chime in and just do my guess that might be completely ridiculous that's the fear okay and that's the conversation you're having in your head the whole time this is this might be this might be ridiculous and might make me sound stupid but like it could actually be the answer <laughs> right is the conversation that is going through your mind with every single question yeah it's mm. a lot it's a lot. Uh, okay, Michael Serrano says a two-part question. Assuming Trump cheats his way to victory, what then? I think we should assume he will. He's already yeah. told us that he wants to rig it. It's what you're seeing with the post offices and 
he doesn't think he can win legitimately. So he's looking for ways that he can rig it. Um, that's not coming from a position of strength. I have to assume, based on everything we've seen, he'll do whatever it takes. Mm. So I think we should all prepare to not um, know the results of this election for some time. It's not going to be in November. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, and then assuming Biden wins, where do we go from there? Ooh, That's a broad I mean, question. <laughs> That's mm, a big question. That's actually the one that keeps me up at night because I will be voting for Biden. I don't know if you knew that, but um, I, yes. I am voting for Biden. And I feel fine about that decision, even though I know I will disagree with him on stuff. Uh, but if Biden wins, half the country that's already mad professionally are going to be really mad. Mm -hmm. And it will be his and our responsibility to care for that situation and not exacerbate it. I don't know how you go about doing that because the trust is so broken on both sides. No one thinks there are good actors on either side, right? Right. Who and how can we facilitate yeah. a coming together? Because the the cleavage, I fear, is will almost be worse if Biden wins. And I think that I think we'll have to figure it out. It's worth it. He Trump has to go. Mm-hmm. But I think we're fooling ourselves if we think Biden gets elected, problems solved. Yeah. And all the Trump supporters just kind of go on with their lives. I don't think that happens. Yeah, I think you're right. I know that I have this tendency online, like on Twitter at least, to just be like, oh, fuck you, or to like want to mock someone whose yeah. beliefs I find odious. I'm yeah. odious and and just to feel like you're you're too far. And I'm not talking about someone who gently disagrees with me. I'm talking about, yeah. you know. Uh, but I know that, that that that's a concession that we'll never agree. Like that just pushes people away. It alienates them. I have a friend, Troy Johnson, who's actually come on my show. He's a, um, a Food Network guy and mm-hmm. a writer in San Diego, actually. And mm-hmm. he will, if someone, like if someone disagrees with, his political tweet, he'll respond to them and say something like, you know, you and I don't see eye to eye, but I respect your, your right to your opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, have a good day. Uh-huh. I'm like, um, imagine being that way. <laughs> like, <laughs> that I, so I nice. wish I could. <laughs> I know. <laughs> because I that know. <laughs> does so much more to make people open to what you have to say. And I have to keep yeah. reminding myself of that. Well, and it's, it's not a conversation ender. Maybe that's a conversation beginner. And I think that's what we're going to need. Mm-hmm. Conversation starters, you know? Right. But you must be pretty good at talking to people that you disagree with and staying calm while you do. I mean, that's your job. I'm usually pretty good. Uh, some notable exceptions, um, which you can Google. But no, I'm usually pre- I'm usually pretty good because I've had to be. I've always been up against, um, or paired with, you know, mm-hmm. people that don't agree with me. I had a, I had a, um, uh, panel show on MSNBC called the Is cycle. The cycle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With three liberals and me, uh, I was on crossfire for CNN and, uh, I had a, another show at Glenn Beck's network that had a bunch of different kind of perspectives at it. So I've always had to 
find a way to have conversations that don't blow up. And that's important to me. I don't like the yelling and the mudslinging and ad hominem. That's never appealed to me. I don't like to do it. And I, I refuse to do it on my show where I have control. Um, but I've loved when I have found those willing participants. Like Van Jones is a very good friend of mine. We've done a lot of television together over the years. We come from very similar places. We want to solve problems and come to some solutions together. And to do that, we both have to listen. We have to give and take. We love doing that. Not everyone wants to find solutions. That's mm-hmm. not the project of everyone, certainly who's on TV or, or, or even in politics. So when you find like-minded folks who disagree with you, but are like-minded on the, the, um, you know, the goal, Mm-hmm. that's really refreshing and great. And that's when I think you can make great TV. I have two more questions and then I okay. will let you go. Okay. Uh, have you had exchanges or, or spar? Have you, has there been sparring between you and Trump? Cause he's very uh, attuned to which reporters dislike him. Yeah, he hasn't in a while, but when he first got elected, there was a lot of tweets about me. He said S.E. Cup's going to be fired soon, I've heard. Um, S.E. Cup is dumb, one of the dumbest, you know, people on CNN. A lot of the typical stuff that you've heard. He right. hasn't done it in a, in a while for some reason, because um, I've only gotten worse. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, in the beginning, in the beginning, when he first came in, he was not pleased with me. Maybe I'm too low on his radar now to matter. Did it bother you? No, that's... That's great. That I've always said it is not my job to be liked. It really isn't my job to be liked by people in power. I'm doing it wrong if people in power who I'm supposed to be holding accountable mm-hmm. like me and praise me and think I'm their friend. Right. So, no, I thought that that was great. And I don't it's not why I am critical of him. I am because I am. But for him to be mad about it and I know him. I knew him, you know? I mean, I had a very professional relationship mm-hmm. with him before he ran for president. So um, he could have been friend- friendly with me. And I loved that he wasn't. I what? loved that he thought I was I was taking him on. What did you think of him before he ran? Like back when you had a professional relationship with him? Well, I thought he was very um, of a talented... Um, you know, pitch man, obviously, but I didn't take him all that seriously. Uh, you know, he was as a New Yorker, he was a a larger than life New Yorker. And so Mm -hmm. he was kind of an institution and I, I introduced him at an event once and I, I got to know his son from TV. Um, I moved into a Trump building at one point and he sent me a housewarming gift. So we had a, a relationship. It was not deep. I didn't have his number or anything. Um, I kind of saw him when I saw him. And I I respected what he had done, but I didn't take him seriously. And and certainly when he started doing all the birther stuff on Fox, I was grossed out. I mean, just mm-hmm. grossed out by by that. And then I actually they told me a couple days before he announced he was running. They told me he was gonna do it. And they sent me a copy of his speech, the speech he was going to give. And I thought, this is great, actually. I mean, in the speech, he was talking about economic development and some of the 
the cities he had turned around, whether it was true or not, it was sober and serious. And of course, he didn't use any of it um, when he actually, get, you know, announced he was running. So I knew this wasn't going to be serious. But um, who's the they that sent it to you? His people? Yeah, it was Sam. It was Sam Nunberg who was working for him at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he would uh, he would say, do you want to interview Trump this week? Do you want to interview Trump? Do you want, you know, he would kind of keep me posted about Trump world. And I wasn't all that interested in it, but Sam was a friend. And so he was keeping me informed, in I guess. Loop, yeah. Yeah. And so I got a copy. I'm sure other people did, too. Um, And I thought, well, this will be interesting. And then he didn't use any of it and talked about rapists instead. So I was like, oh, it won't be interesting. This is going to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and lastly, okay. the puzzle crushing, which I love yes. to watch on <clears throat> on social media. Please explain. Do you love it? Because a lot of people don't love it. I love it. Yeah, to I find me, it it's really like, satisfying. Yeah, I. It's like it's like those ASMR videos, which yes. I'm not into, but there's something so satisfying yes. about watching you do a puzzle and then crush it at the end. Who are these yes. people who don't like it? Oh, some people are really triggered by it. Really. Um, so I do a puzzle. I do a thousand piece puzzle, usually one a week. And at the end, I crush it and I crush it on camera so everyone can watch. And lots of people find it satisfying, but lots of people are triggered by it so and find weird. it deeply unsettling, deeply unsettling. What do they do? Frame their puzzles? That's what they say. They say you should frame that. Why are you doing that? First of all, I'd have, a, you know, 15 of them in my house. Yeah. But um, second of all, they're not precious. It's not art. It's a puzzle. And so, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it came it came in a box, not together. It's going to yeah. be okay in a box, not together <laughs> for someone else to do someday. But man, I, str- I really struck a nerve with those videos. But uh, I, love I enjoy them. them. Good. Yeah. I'll keep doing them just for you. Please do. Uh, did you do puzzles before all this? No. This so a it's a new to- thing. Total COVID <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah. And mostly because I feel like idle hands. Yeah. Idle hands bad, bad things happen. Uh, so I just like to keep busy. Essie Cup, it was so nice having you on the show. Thank you so, so, so much. Tell everyone uh, where they can find you, plug anything you'd like to plug. Uh, well, I've got a show on CNN every Saturday night um, called Essie Cup Unfiltered, 6 p.m. Eastern. Um, I've got a nationally syndicated column that appears in the New York Daily News every week. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Thanks for having me. This was so fun to do. You're so good at this, but also just like great to see you again. Yeah, like, great to see you again too. Catch up. Yeah. Um, everyone follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Allison Rosen. Follow my show's Twitter feed at ARIYNBF. Again, I'm on patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. I'm on cameo, cameo.com slash Allison Rosen. If you'd like what you're hearing, please uh, rate, review, subscribe, uh, leave a nice comment that helps us out so much. And then uh, check this out on youtube.com slash Allison Rosen. Thank you so much, SE listeners. Thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen.